Hey, modern explorers, you're listening to Midland in our own words, a bi-monthly podcast uncovering Midland County's history as told by you, our community and listeners. Each podcast, we'll introduce never before heard stories and tales through personal testimonials and memories passed down through generations. Subscribe to our podcast today to further discover the history of Midland County and send us a note if you have a story you'd like to share. This podcast is part of the Midland County Historical Society's Oral History Project. For more information, please visit midlandcenter.org backslash oral history. Good morning, Floyd. Good morning, Ken. Uh, just for people watching this or listening to this, I'm Ken Randall. I'm interviewing Floyd Andrick. Uh, today's date is February 11th, 2021. Uh, Floyd, it's, you know, I, I know you pretty well now, uh, but I, I think we just need to keep this somewhat in a conversational style. And if you could tell me something about yourself and where you grew up. Okay. Well, I was born right here in Midland, Michigan, August 6, 1947. Uh, grew up in this area. I lived uh, at our family farm up near Hope until I was 19. And then I purchased 40 acres next to our farm from an uncle. I lived there until 1976. And then I moved into Midland temporarily. Well, I'm still here. All right. Now, when you were when you were a child, you, you had a lot of interest. But one thing you became interested in at a young age was the Titanic. How uh, did yes. you get in, How did you get interested in the Titanic? Okay. When I was a child, I enjoyed spending time with my grandmother, who was quite a historian. And I think I was about seven years of age. I was helping Grandma in the garden one day and. Usually it would go, I would say, well, Grandma, tell me a story. And she would relate some historical event that she had experienced or remembered. So that day she said, well, what haven't I told you? She says, well, um, back in 1912, over in England, they built what they called the biggest, finest ship in all the world. It was named the Titanic. And they built it so well, they labeled it unsinkable. And on its maiden voyage from England to New York, uh, they departed England on April 10th, 1912. And on the night of April 14th to the morning of the 15th, well, the Titanic had collided with an iceberg and sank two hours and 40 minutes later. Well, I was so fascinated with this story, I did some research. And then in 1958, a movie about the Titanic sinking came out. It was called A Night to Remember. And once I saw that movie, I was really hooked. In 1970, I joined the Titanic Historic Society. And then in 1982, I drove to Philadelphia in April 1982 to attend the Titanic Convention. Uh, this was the 70th anniversary event of the Titanic sinking. 
and I met five survivors. Uh, all total, there were 705 people survived the Titanic sinking. And uh, once I met survivors, I was really hooked. And over the subsequent years, I had the great honor and pleasure of personally knowing 14 survivors from the Titanic. Um, I have all of their stories recorded. Uh, of course, all of them have passed away by now. The last one was Melvina Dean, uh, May 31st, uh, 2009. She passed away at the age of 98. So uh, the interest in the Titanic, it's uh, taken me all over the US uh, to Europe. I've attended uh, Titanic conventions in Switzerland and Germany. Uh, back in 2001, I was asked to do my renowned Titanic presentation, which I've given all over the US uh, for lots of social groups, uh, historical groups. And I was asked to do my presentation for the Swiss Titanic Society in 2001. I agreed to it. And then the president of the organization commented, uh, Floyd, it has to be done in German. Well, I was not really fluent in German, not at all. So I called a friend here in Midland, Edith Anders, who had been, uh, well, she was from Germany, she and her husband, Oswald. And uh, she was a German teacher. So she invited me over. I did my presentation for her. She recorded it. A couple weeks later, she called me and invited me over. And she had recorded my presentation all in German. And she had typed it out word for word in German. So I could read it and hear it at the same time. So I was giving my presentation all in German for the Swiss Titanic Society, which was held in Stuttgart, Germany. And uh, people commented, Floyd, your German is perfect. Your German is excellent. <laughs> Little did they know I had not really been educated in German and giving that presentation in front of roughly 100 people. <laughs> it was uh, what a unique experience. The now you became friends with the survivors with yes, 14 survivors. of them. And my understanding is you actually lived or visited for a long time. Uh, was it sisters in England? Uh, yes. Uh, one survivor from England, Eva Hart, her story is to me one of the most fascinating. Uh, and I will share it as Eva shared it with me. Um, she was born in 1905 in Southampton, England. And she shared that when she was seven years old, she came home from school one day, that was February of 1912. She came in the door and her mother, Esther Hart, was sitting at the kitchen table. Her mother was crying. And Eva asked her mother, said, Mommy, what is wrong? And her mother said, oh, 
your father's got this crazy notion. He wants to sell his woodworking business, travel across the Atlantic, and join his brother in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada in business there. And Mrs. Hart said, I've just got a bad feeling about traveling on the ocean. Well, over the next three months, Mrs. Hart tried to convince her husband that they not take this trip, but he was adamant that they would go. Well, Eva shared on the morning of April 7th, three days before they were to depart, said her father came in the door, he was all excited. He said to Mrs. Hart, something wonderful has happened. And Mrs. Hart said, Oh no, he said, uh, you know, due to the coal strike, our passage has been transferred from the ship Philadelphia to this wonderful new ship named the Titanic. And Eva said, my mother turned pale and she said, oh no, no, no. She said, I feel much worse about going now. And over the next three days, she continued to beg and implore her husband they would not take this trip, but he was adamant that they would go. On the morning of April 10th, Eva, her mother, and her father, Benjamin Hart, they went aboard the Titanic at about 9.30 in the morning at Ocean Dock in Southampton. Eva said, when we were on the way to our stateroom, E-101, which was in second class, they ran into an officer and Mrs. Hart stopped the officer and asked him. She said, I've got a bad feeling. Can you tell me the location of life jackets and life-saving equipment? And Eva said this officer stepped back and he looked at her mother and said, hey, mom, you don't need to be concerned that God, uh, don't you know, this ship is unsinkable. Even God couldn't sink this ship. And Eva said, my mother grabbed the rail to steady herself. She turned pale and she solemnly replied, I will never reach America in this ship. Something's going to happen to this ship. It'll happen at night. So I'll stay up at night and I'll sleep in the daytime. And Eva said, my father looked at her and said, oh, for goodness sakes, woman, don't be so stupid. Well, they made their way to their stateroom. Not long after, had lunch. That afternoon, they toured this grand and elegant ship. That night, Eva said, my father and I crawled into our bunks, went peacefully asleep. My mother sat up. She alternated between reading, sewing, knitting. And so it went on that night, the next few nights. Well, then on Sunday, April 14th, Eva said it was a bright, sunny afternoon. Uh, it was warm. People were out strolling the decks. But then by late afternoon, uh, the temperature dropped and they heard at dinner that they may have to slow down because they had some warnings of icebergs ahead. That evening, as father and as Eva said, father and I crawled into our bunks, said my mother seemed very agitated, very uneasy. 
So she sat up fully dressed, and later she described the collision with the iceberg that took place at 11.40 p.m. Mrs. Hart described it as though someone took a giant finger and run it down the side of the ship, scraping, grinding, this horrible noise. And immediately, Mrs. Hart shook her husband awake and implored him to get up, go find out something has happened, go find out what's wrong. Eva said, my father was most cross about having to get up in the middle of the night, such a cold night. Well, Eva said gruffly, he got up, got dressed, went out. Meanwhile, Eva said, my mother got me out of bed and was putting on all these, these warm clothes and a scarf and a cap and my coat. And Eva said, she cried because she was cold and she she couldn't understand why her mother was getting her dressed in the middle of the night and she said mommy are we in new york and her mother said no something's happened to the ship we're gonna have to leave the ship well shortly thereafter eva said my father returned to the stateroom and she said, I remember how white he was when he came in the door. And he had this big sheepskin coat. He took it off, put it on his wife. And he calmly said to me and my mother, come with me. We were escorted up to the boat deck. They were loading lifeboats. And Eva said it was so cold and so dark. And she said, my mother and I were escorted into lifeboat number 14. And she said, my father stood back. And as they started to lower the boat, my mother said to my father, what about you? He said, oh, this is just a precaution. You'll be back on board before morning, so I'll see you at breakfast. And Eva said, we were lowered away. She said, I was absolutely terrified. So we're lowered 60 some feet down the side of that ship, down into the darkness. Soon we got down into the water and uh, that boat had room for 65. There were 52 aboard and said, we rowed out away from the ship and she said, I never took my eyes off that ship. Said it was lit from end to end. The band was playing. But I noticed that at the bow section, that was down low in the water. The stern was high in the water. And I watched as lifeboats were lowered down over the side. As time went on, the bow went fully under. The stern rose up higher and higher above the surface and then at uh, about 2 18 a.m said the lights went out and said the stern of the ship was pointing up into the night sky just like a giant finger and then there was this awful awful noise that echoed across the water the sound of this great ship breaking apart we saw the stern break apart from the forward section. It settled back into the water and then it went down 
about two minutes later at 2.20 a.m. And she said, oh, the sound that echoed across the ocean of 1,500 people going into 28-degree water said, it's a sound that I'll never forget. And that was echoed by the other survivors that I knew that were old enough to remember. Eva said, over the next hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes, she couldn't really recall how long from that time, said that uh, 4 a.m. they heard a boom. And then they saw the green running lights of the Carpathia coming up from the south. Well, backing up, uh, the Titanic had struck the ice at 20 to 12. At 12.10 a.m., wireless operator Philip Bride sent out the call for assistance, saying, you know, we are the Titanic, we have struck an iceberg, we're sinking, come as quickly as possible. Well, there was one ship, the Californian, was only about 10 miles north. And, uh, but they, the wireless operator had shut down his Marconi wireless uh, sometime before and he'd went to bed. Another ship, the Carpathia, was 58 miles to the south, outbound from New York, headed to the Mediterranean. The wireless operator, Thomas Cottom, he was preparing to shut down his set and go to bed. And he had taken his jacket off, pulled one boot off. The other boot had a knot in the lace and he had his foot up on his chair, trying to undo that knot. When in his headset, he heard the Titanic distress call. Another moment, he would have had his boot off, pulled his headset off, never would have got the message. Cottom wired back to the Titanic to confirm, and then Cottom raced up to the bridge to tell Captain Arthur Rostron of the Carpathia of the emergency with the Titanic. Cottom radioed back to the Titanic that it would be 5 a.m. before they could reach the scene. But over the next few hours, uh, Captain Rostron uh, turned off all the heat to the staterooms on the Carpathia. He got all of his crew up to fire boilers. Uh, the Carpathia had a top speed of 12 knots, but racing to the Titanic rescue, he got the ship up to 17 knots, and they arrived on the scene at 4 a.m. Uh, Eva said seeing the Carpathia arrive was so joyous. Everybody was rejoicing that they were going to be rescued. And then over the next four hours, 705 living souls from the Titanic were taken aboard the Carpathia. At 9 a.m., a service of Thanksgiving was held in the Grand Salon of the Carpathia. And then the ship was turned around to head back to New York, which is about uh, six to 700 miles away. Meanwhile, other ships uh, arrived on the scene to look for survivors, but all they found was a sea strewn with wreckage of the greatest liner ever built up to that time, 
and the sea strewn with hundreds of bodies in life jackets. Eva and her mother, of course, arrived in New York uh, on the Carpathia on the Thursday evening. It was Monday morning when the ship Titanic went down. And her mother immediately booked passage on the ship Celtic to return back to England since there was no sense going on to New York. And Eva said her mother never had another premonition. That was like a once in a lifetime event. And, uh, but Eva herself had nightmares for several years after that. Well, I met Eva in 1982 and uh, we carried on correspondence. Uh, I visited with her in uh, May of 1988 at her home in England. She prepared a wonderful dinner for me and she recounted this event as I shared with you. And then Eva passed away at the age of 91 on February 14th, 1996. Her story to me is one of the most fascinating, I guess because of the premonition and how it was so accurate that, uh, that her mother just had such a terrible feeling three months before the event happened. And then on the night of April 14th, that she just knew that something was going to happen that night. And as she predicted on the morning of April 10th, that she would never reach America in that ship. That was correct because she reached America in the Carpathia. Uh, the other 13 survivors all had their own unique stories, but uh, Eva Hart's story to me is one of the most fascinating, intriguing. So that's the story in a nutshell. That's, that's an amazing story. Uh, and everybody has a story. It's, I mean, just to hear one person's story and just to realize how many, how many people that really affected. Yes. So you're con you're considered an expert on the titanic you were actually an advisor to james cameron's film the movie titanic correct that's correct yes uh what what involvement did you have with that film okay well i uh provided james cameron with several of the uh survivor accounts and uh he based the movie primarily on survivor accounts and he did ask if I would like to be a part in the movie, but uh, the uh, mock-up for the ship was built in Rosarito, Mexico, just across from California. Utilized inexpensive Mexican labor to build the mock-up model. Well, even for a bit part, I would need to be available for uh, roughly about three to four weeks because of takes, retakes. And at that time I was professionally employed and there was just no way I could knock that much time out of my life and be away. So uh, it was just a bit part. I would step out of a doorway as three Titanic passengers would be running toward me in the hallway and they would ask, how do we get to the lifeboats? And I would say, well, follow me. 
and we would then turn to go up the stairway. So I'm sure uh, that very likely would have been cut from the final edition anyway, but uh, I was thrilled to have been asked. Well, you're still in the credits as an advisor, correct? From what I understand, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of credits listed at the end of the movie, which came out in December 1997. And they flash by so fast, I have not yet seen my name, but I've been told it's in there. So right. I'll take well, others' word for it. And just people might forget this, but that was a huge movie. It grossed over $2 billion. It was nominated for 14 Academy Awards, and it did win, I believe, 11, including Best Picture. That's I mean, it's correct. The biggest films ever made. Right. Uh, there's one thing that really got to me in that movie, and I'm maybe it came from you, but that people in third class or steer, I, I'm not sure what it was called, but they were actually gated in, locked in, they couldn't escape. Was that accurate? Uh, yes. Uh, you know, well, the Titanic was separated by first class, second class, and third class, which were primarily immigrants and, and poorer people. And... Uh, they really wanted to reserve lifeboat capacity for uh, first and second class. Um, and it was to be women and children only. But interestingly, uh, almost as many men survived as did women. Uh, there were 54 children survived. Uh, I remember I asked Eva Hart one time, and I said, well, what class were you in? And she said, well, we were in second class. Uh, but I'll quote her when I ask her, she, and I ask what the, the passage cost her father. And her exact words were, I can't remember what it cost since we traveled second class. <laughs> uh, but yes, um, survivors have shared that Many people in third class did not get out, but they were kept below. They rushed the lifeboats. Uh, there were 2,223 people aboard, and maximum capacity in the 20 lifeboats would have been 1,178 people. That meant there was not room in lifeboats for half of all the people aboard. And unfortunately, uh, many of the initial lifeboats that were lowered were lowered with far less than their capacity. Uh, for example, boat seven, the first boat launched, had room for 65. There were only 28 aboard. Second boat lowered, boat one, had room for 40. There were only 12 aboard. It wasn't until things were getting really critical to the end that boats were lowered uh, with capacity, uh, number of people uh, in them. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, there were, there were many of the third class were kept down below and of course drowned when the ship went down. It's interesting to me how you became interested in the Titanic as a young boy. And we should talk about the movie again, A Night to Remember. You watched that on TV, right? 
Yes. And you told me before, well, tell me what happened that night. I mean, what deal you made with your mom? Okay. Well, it came on on a Sunday evening, uh, which was a school night. And uh, that afternoon, there were previews on our 19-inch black and white Philco TV. And we kids were so fascinated. We just, Mom, can we stay up and watch that? And she says, well, it comes on at 9 o'clock. And that's time you kids need to be in bed. But we pleaded and begged, Mom. We promised tomorrow morning when you call us to get up for school, we promise we'll get right up. Well, so the movie came on at nine o'clock and it lasted two hours and I think two hours and 20 minutes. And well, as soon as it was over, we were ushered upstairs to bed. And yeah, next morning we kept our promise. We did get up, but I know I didn't sleep much that night. That that movie kind of haunted me. I mean, uh, it was so dramatic. And Walter Lord, that the book, and then of course the movie was made in California. It was done so well for that time. Um, I guess that's what really enhanced my interest. And I guess say then. Uh, the sinking of the Titanic really changed my life. Uh, it's taken me all over the world. I've met hundreds of people as a result. Uh, uh, I say I attended the 70 year anniversary in Philadelphia in uh, 1982. And then five years later, I was the primary organizer and I hosted the 75 year anniversary convention, which was held in Wilmington, Delaware. State of Delaware, it was their 200 year anniversary. They rolled out the red carpet for us. And the governor of Delaware uh, called me directly and said, anything you need, it's yours. Well, we had nine Titanic survivors attend that event. Uh, it was it was a very grand event. We had room for 900 in the grand ballroom at the Wilmington Radisson Hotel. 1,100 people showed up. Wow. <laughs> uh, I tell you, uh, these few gray hairs that I have, I think I earned them that week of organizing and hosting that uh, convention. And the Saturday evening banquet, uh, that was televised nationally. Wow. And about an hour before it was, I was to go to the podium to kick off the event, my nerves were about shot. Survivor uh, Dorothy Dean from England, she brought me a water glass and she said, here, Floyd, drink this. You need this. She saw my nerved up condition. So I was sipping away on whatever she gave me, oblivious to what it was. I was answering questions, directing action, this, that, yep, whatever. And at seven o'clock, I walked to the podium, looked at those sea of faces and those TV cameras, and I thought, gee, there's nothing to this. <laughs> well, later did I 
find out from Dorothy Dean that water glass was half vodka, the other half was orange juice. <laughs> I was just totally relaxed <laughs> from the national TV. <laughs> A lot of wonderful experiences with survivors and attending and hosting conventions, uh, not only in this country, but in uh, Switzerland and Germany as well. Well, I, I thank you for sharing those stories today. My pleasure. Wonderful to have them recorded. Uh, you also, switching gears, uh, were friends with, with the Dion Quints. Yes. Just tell, a lot of people don't know now who the Dion Quints were. Can you say who the Dion Quints were? Give some okay. background. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. Well, uh, the Dion quintuplets, five identical baby girls, were born on the morning of May 28, 1934, to Oliva and Elzir Dion at their family uh, family's log farmhouse uh, near Calendar, Ontario, Canada, which is about 200 miles north of Toronto, or about 285 miles east of Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, Mrs. Dion was 25 at the time. This was her seventh pregnancy. Uh, the previous six were all single deliveries. And uh, she had, well, I, I met Mr. and Mrs. Dion when I was 19 years of age. I had heard about them uh, all my life up until that time. Uh, I guess I'll preface this going back to when I was almost seven years of age. Um, in fact, uh, I'll, I'll go back actually to my seventh birthday, August 6th, uh, uh, 1954. Uh, I was seven years old that day. Late that afternoon, uh, my sisters had made me a birthday cake and we kids were had sat down at the dining room table to have some cake. The radio was on and an announcer came on, we bring you a news bulletin from Canada. And my grandmother shushed us kids. Back then, if an adult shushed you, you, you didn't move. Momentarily, the announcer came on and said, we bring a, a news bulletin from Canada that quintuplet Emily Dion has died, uh, died this morning at the age of 20 years. Well, I remember that my grandmother was shocked and seemed like visitors to our home the subsequent days. That's all they talked about was the death of quintuplet Emily Dion. My grandmother then related to me that the nurse that was called in the day the Quints were born was related to our family. And my grandmother showed me pictures of the quintuplets and uh, and about some correspondence with uh, Nurse Yvonne LaRue. Uh, so, you know, I grew up just hearing all about them. And uh, when I finished my first year at Delta in uh, 1966, a um, friend and I decided to go on a fishing trip to Canada. And I kind of wanted to see where all this had taken place because 
the Quints became world famous. I mean, their pictures were on calendars and all kinds of products were endorsed. And sadly, when the quintuplets were four months of age, the Canadian government seized control of the quintuplets. They built a hospital across the road from the farmhouse, moved the quints there, and eventually it's estimated the Canadian government amassed $500 million off the quintuplets. Um, the parents protested the government wanting custody of their five identical babies, but the Canadian government was making so much money on them that they refused to relinquish custody of the babies. The girls were actually nine years of age before the parents regained custody. The twins had been raised as princesses, and at age nine, a big home had been built for the whole family. And the Quints then moved in with their uh, then seven brothers and sisters and their mother and father, who they were a farm family. And it didn't work out too well because you mix royalty with commoners, as the Quints were raised as royalty. It just didn't work too well, even though the parents really tried their best to integrate their five daughters in with the rest of the family. Um, it, like I say, it just didn't work too well. And then when the Quints were 18, after they graduated from high school, uh, they all went off to Montreal to colleges. And uh, then Quint Emily, when they were 20, she suffocated in an epileptic seizure. They estimated that roughly 5,000 people attended her funeral. Uh, the other four sisters then went back and lived in Montreal. Uh, Quint Marie died when they were 36. That was March 1st, 1970. Uh, then in uh, 2007, Quint Yvonne, she passed away. And there are only two sisters left, Annette and Cecile. And they will be 86 on May 28th. It's an awesome story. Uh, I, too, do presentations on the Dion quintuplets. I've given that presentation all over the U.S. Uh, go online, type in Dion quintuplets, and you can read for days. It's just uh, such an incredible story that these five tiny babies that only weighed two pounds and less each, they were kept alive in a butcher's basket on the oven door of the kitchen range. Uh, they were fed with eyedroppers, and uh, amazingly, the five of them lived to adulthood. So that is just a monumental story in, in, in a few words. I, I did look it up a little bit. I, I've heard of the Dion Quince, but I never knew a lot about it. And, and you're right. If you get on the Internet, there's a ton of information. It was my... My great honor and pleasure that I've known the family for about uh, 50, 
about 55 years this June. I had a wonderful friendship with the parents. I would usually visit the family two and three times a year. They invited me to stay with them in their home. Um, it was just such a great honor to know these world famous people, but you would never know their fame in their presence. They were just common, ordinary farm family folks. I only met three of the quintuplets at their father's funeral on November 16th, uh, 1979. Uh, that was the only time that I ever met any of the quints. But I had been good friends with all the other Dion children. Um, they're all deceased now. They had a total of 13 children, including the quints. Uh, the oldest girl is still living. She's 90. And then the two surviving quints, all the rest have passed. The, the one fact that really jumped out at me was that there was a year when people going to Quintland and looking for the quints generated more money. It was the most popular tourist attraction in all of Ontario, even more popular than Niagara Falls. Exactly. It tells you how huge they were. And so they were doing commercials for or advertisements for Quaker Oats and soaps and things like that. I mean, they, they were just huge. That's right. Yes. On Labor Day of 1936, when the Quints were two years old, there were 6,000 people lined up to see them in their uh, hospital observatory. That's, yeah. So, total. They estimated that as many as 3 million people journeyed to that little country setting to see the quints during those years that the government had them on exhibit. So sad. I mean, they were exhibited like zoo animals. Yeah. It's unimaginable today. Yes. But it happened. And All right. Well, you've referenced, I mean, obviously, you know a lot about history. I should ask a little bit. You've been with a... Midland County Historical Society for how many years? Uh, 22 years I've been on the board. Um, they have term limits. So I should have been off the board about 13, 14 years ago. <laughs> but each time my term limit was up, usually the director, Gary Scorey, would say, Floyd, we, we need you on this board. We'll just ignore the term limits. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's gonna be 23 years and I was chairman of the board from 2000, uh, September 2007 till the end of August of 2012. So I was five years as board chairman. And at that time, I commented to Gary Scorey, I said, if I don't resign, I'm going to end up being 100 years old and still board chairman. And Gary said, and that would be quite all right. <laughs> it's been a wonderful experience. Uh, over all these years, and uh, I love history, local history, and had many great opportunities to uh, really share and enhance our local history. I've written for the Midland Daily News, uh, stories like uh, the airplane crash that killed Willard Dow, uh, building Midland's hospital, um, for many years, I conducted a program called Fireside Chats. Would pick a different topic each month, 
and usually invite uh, people in as panelists, people that were connected with that story. And I think one of the most notable fireside chats was on November 9th, 2017. That uh, fireside chat was called Midland Centenarians. My panel consisted of four Midlanders who were all age 100 years or over. Uh, there was Rhea Curry, uh, Howard Shaver, Frida Milano, and uh, Rosa Miller. Uh, the first three have passed. Rosa Miller is still living, and I believe she'll be 103 next month. 100, maybe 104. I'll have to check my records. But that was just such a awesome fireside chat. The humor shared by those four people, all age 100 and over, all sharp as could be. Uh, and unfortunately, that was my last fireside chat. Uh, Things were changing with Center of Arts, who is our parent company, I guess we could call it, uh, parent organization. And uh, since the Fireside Chat program was not really generating any revenue to speak of, why uh, it had to come to an end, unfortunately. And even since that time, uh, I've had so many people in social settings or even meeting in stores say floyd when are you gonna start up the fireside chats again it was such a popular program and oftentimes well i remember one program that i did on the crash of flight 67. that was a passenger plane that crashed at then tri-city now mbs airport crashed on April 6, 1958, Easter Sunday, killed 47 people, many from this area. I had well over 100 people attended that fireside chat, including relatives of crash victims and uh, two witnesses to the crash. So, uh, yeah, like I say, it's been a wonderful 20-some years uh, on the board and of course now due to the flood back in May, things have really been shut down. Uh, hopefully one day we can, and I, I'm sure we will, get back up and running again. Well, we definitely will. Yes. <laughs> um, let's talk just a little bit of flight, about Flight 67. I, what struck me as odd about that was the flight actually went from Flint to Tri-City. Yes. It's a very short flight. Yes. Um, is it was there? Is that because there was no um, Zilwaukee Bridge? Okay. Well, I'll try to compress the story. Um, that was April 6, nineteen fifty-eight. It was Easter Sunday, and I remember that morning. Uh, I was almost ten years old. A neighbor boy and I. We were waiting for the church bus to go to Hope Baptist Church for the Easter services. And when we got home a little afternoon, it was a cold, blustery day. There were snow flurries in the air. And the weather conditions really impacted flight schedules 
not only over Michigan, but pretty well all over Eastern United States. Flight 67 was a Capital Airlines uh, British-built Vickers uh, Viscount plane. It was a four-engine prop jet. The plane was 81 feet long and 94-foot wingspan, a uh, capacity of 44 passengers. The uh, plane was to land in uh, New York City that afternoon uh, but due to weather conditions, it was diverted to Newark, New Jersey. It was to leave at around 6 p.m. There was a Bay City doctor, Dr. Frank Horowitz, and his wife and daughter. Uh, they had flown from Bay City uh, to New York City to visit with relatives for the Easter weekend. And they were due to get on that plane to come back home to Bay City. Well, when the plane was diverted to Newark, uh, they missed the flight. Dr. Horowitz was able to book passage on another uh, flight up to Detroit, hoping they could get to Detroit in time and then get the flight on up to Tri-City. On the flight from Newark up to Detroit, uh, one of the flight attendants, Sue Wessel, became ill and she left the plane when it landed in Detroit. Uh, the plane then flew on to Flint, got there at 10 p.m. And uh, it had been decided by Capital Airlines earlier that afternoon that due to weather conditions uh, that the plane would come to Flint but then go to Grand Rapids, it wouldn't come on to Tri-City or now MBS Airport. So there were eight people from uh, Midland Bay City, Saginaw. Uh, Capital instructed them to drive to Flint so they could get on the plane because it would not come into Tri-City that night. One of those was 18-year-old Ray Merrill. He was a naval cadet. Uh, stationed in Chicago. He had flown home the day before to spend with his family. So that afternoon, his father drove him to the Flint Airport so he could be sure to get back to Chicago for uh, his training the next morning. Uh, there were several others, seven others from this area that drove to Flint that afternoon. Well, at 10 p.m., the plane landed in Flint, and uh, it was announced that weather conditions had slightly improved, so the plane would go on to Tri-City after all. I'm sure those eight people that cut Easter short to drive to Flint probably groaned and said, oh, great, but such as it was. Captain William Hull, the pilot, uh, when he was going over the uh, flight arrangements, realized there were 46 passengers for the plane and only 44 seats. So it was announced, would two passengers be willing to give up their seats uh, because uh, of the overload, but the Capital Airlines limousine would take those two passengers on to MBS or Tri-City Airport. 
there were two sailors, uh, Robert Wilson and William McNally. Uh, Captain Hull said, well, uh, we'll have the limousine take you right to your ship in Bay City, the GG Post. So the two sailors said, no, great, we'll give up our seats. So they got in the Capital Airlines limousine. Uh, the plane took off at uh, about 11 p.m. to fly up to Tri-City. Uh, the plane weighed about 30 some tons at that time. Uh, they flew at about 3,600 feet, got up to a cruising speed of 190 miles an hour for the short flight up to Tri-City. Arrived in the area east of Tri-City Airport at about 11.16, made a wide circle around to the north, the west, come around over Freeland, and due to gust of wind, uh, Captain Hull had to bank the plane quite sharply to line up with the northeast-southwest runway. Now on the ground at Tri-City Airport, uh, there was a family, uh, Nelson Girardin, his wife, uh, son Larry, son Paul, and daughter Amy. Um, they had stopped at the airport to watch planes land. And Larry Girardin has shared, he said, we saw the plane come around over Freeland through the snow squalls. It banked sharply. We saw the landing lights come on. And then all of a sudden, the, the plane was maybe three, 400 feet above the ground. And all of a sudden, the lights just turned down toward the ground. And suddenly, there was a tremendous boom. The ground shook. And then a fireball shot 100 feet into the sky. Well, it was subsequently determined that apparently with, due to the wind squalls and Captain Hall banking the plane sharply, that apparently an, an ice had formed on the wings because uh, he had to, this can get complicated, <laughs> he, uh, with a prop engine, and there were four engines, uh, prior to landing, it was customary to retard the fuel mixture, which made less heat to the wings and the stabilizer. Thus, it allowed ice to form on the wings. So with a combination of ice on the wings and a possible stall, that's what caused the plane to just suddenly nose to the ground. Larry Girardin said his dad gunned the car engine down Freeland Road. He jumped out to run to the scene thinking he could help survivors. Uh, the plane crashed 2,100 feet short of the runway, but Mr. Girardin said the fire was so hot he couldn't even get close. Uh, moments later, uh, Another farmer on whose uh, land the plane crashed arrived, and uh, both men determined there's no way anybody could have survived. Wasn't long, uh, ambulances and, and fire trucks began to arrive, and uh, 
another neighbor with a caterpillar uh, used his machine to tow fire trucks and rescue vehicles through the mud to the crash scene. And finally, at 12.30, an hour and 10 minutes after the plane crashed, uh, they were able to extinguish the flames in the wreckage, and then they began to remove bodies. The one farmer that used his caterpillar went back to his barn, hooked up a wagon, and they loaded burned, dismembered bodies onto the wagon. He hauled them out to Freeland Road. The bodies were loaded in ambulances, transported across to the Dow hangar at Tri-City Airport. Um, the last body was not removed until uh, around 7 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I won't go into the morbid details that individuals that worked the scene. Um, one fellow, Al Gulo, was with the Coast Guard. He was called in to help. And I've talked to Al. He lives up in all gray now. He's almost 90. And all Al would say was, I helped remove the bodies. I helped take care of the bodies. That's all he will say. Um, that afternoon, I remember it was a bright, bright sunny day on April 7th. And that morning at school, our teacher told that a big plane had crashed at Tri-City Airport and that 47 people had been killed. Several of them were Dow chemists and executives. That afternoon, when I got home from school, my brother-in-law said, come on, kids, let's go over to the airport and let's see where that big plane crashed. Well, we got over there and, of course, we couldn't go near the scene, but I remember seeing the wreckage out there in the field and there was still smoke coming up. You could see the tail of the plane. It was upside down. You could read Viscount and Capital on the tail. Uh, there were a lot of vehicles and trucks out there, a lot of officials. And uh, interestingly, uh, Dr. Frank Horowitz, uh, he and his wife and daughter, they arrived in Detroit airport just a few moments too late to get on the Flight 67 to get up to Flint and then eventually to Tri-City. Dr. Horowitz was very angry that he and his wife and daughter had to take a bus home to Bay City. But then the next morning, they were very thankful they had missed the plane not once, but twice. Likewise, at 7.30 a.m. on the ship GG Post, sailors McNally and Wilson heard the news that the plane that they gave up their seats for had crashed at Tri-City Airport and everyone had been killed. And how sad and tragic it had to be for those family members, uh, especially uh, Dr. Merrill, who had drove his 18-year-old son to Flint so he could be sure to get back to Chicago that night. And then 
They come to Tri-City, the plane crashed, and they were all killed where they would have originally boarded. Just a very tragic story. It's another event that I've given presentations on for many social groups, senior groups. And uh, I'm guessing once this pandemic is over, I'll be back doing presentations on the Titanic, the crash of Flight 67, the Dion quintuplets, um, and a variety of other topics that I've spoke on over the years. Well, this pandemic can't end soon enough. Yes. Are you are you scheduled to get your shot? I know that's off topic. Uh, yes, I'm on the Midland County Health Department's list. I see in uh, last evening's newspaper that they're down to the low the people in ages the low 80s. Okay. They will get on down to the 70s, and I'll soon be 74. So uh, I've got a a time to wait until my number comes up, but. I'm anxious to get the vaccine, and I highly encourage everyone take this vaccine because the alternative, you're not immunized, you get the virus, you could die, or as almost 70% of those who have been afflicted with the virus have what could be long-term, maybe lifelong health effects. I've lost five friends that have died from the virus. I have several who have had the virus and are now suffering after effects. Um, some that could be, uh, could cause their death here in due time or really impair their lives from here on out. So take the vaccine. I'm sorry to hear about your friends, Floyd. Thank you. You were a tour leader for the Dow Museum, is that correct? Uh, the Dow uh, Family Home on uh, West Main Street. Okay. Uh, I guess I, since this is a Midland County Historical Society broadcast or recording, uh, I would like to know more, if there's any stories you could tell me about that. Okay. Uh, many years ago, our then director, Gary Scorey, uh, went to the home of Herbert and Grace Dow there on uh, West Main Street, part of Dow Gardens. And uh, Dorothy Dow Arbery, the Dow's youngest daughter, shared a lot of uh, the family history and family stories connected with the house and things that she remembered uh, from growing up there. So Gary began conducting tours of the house and then uh, having several of us that were interested uh, learn the tour, hear the stories so that we could conduct the tours, which I did for many years until the Dow Gardens administration changed and uh, the administrators felt they would like to have Dow Garden staff conduct the tours. Um, I think one of my most notable tours, um, I was called to give this tour, it was for four German chemists that were in Midland. 
and I was asked if I could conduct a Sunday afternoon tour for these four German chemists, which I said, I'd be glad to. So at the appointed time, I met them on the front porch of the Dow home. I asked them, would you like to tour in German or would you like it in English? And they looked at me, you mean you could do it in German? I said, well, it won't be absolutely correct German, but I can do it. And they said, well, do it in English, but things like dates and numerical things like that, if you would do that in German for us. Okay. So as I conducted the tour through the home, we got into the dining room and I shared the story that Dorothy Dow Arbery related that when she was a young girl, she came home from school one day. Her father was sitting there at the table. It was Herbert Dow sitting there at the table with Henry Ford. And Henry Ford was telling Mr. Dow that he couldn't figure out what was wrong with his car engines, that they rough, they ran roughly, they knocked and clanked, and he thought it's got to be something with the fuel. Could Mr. Dow and his chemist work on this, see what they can come up with? So the Dow chemist went to work on it, and they developed uh, ethyl dibromide, tetraethyl lead, that was added to the gasoline, and the car engines ran smoothly ever thereafter. And I've learned that Dow Chemical received a fraction of a cent of every gallon of leaded gasoline sold thereafter, which certainly amounted to millions of dollars. Well, I shared that story with the German chemist, and one of them nicely admonished me, he said, Mr. Andrick, that is not correct. German chemist invented ethyl dibromide, tetraethyl lead. I said, okay, today they did. <laughs> the rest of the tour went very well. <laughs> I guess one thing I'd be curious is any stories that maybe Dorothy Arbery told you that maybe people don't know, like something that you could relate, even if it's something personal, like what kind of person she was or her dad or family was or anything like that. Okay. Uh, well, she had related that, uh, you know, while her father was home, Dow Chemical was rarely mentioned. He left Dow Chemical at the east end of Main Street. He was very much just a family man at home. Uh, the home is pretty much as it was when uh, Grace Dow died there on June 28, 1953. There's a red stuffed chair right inside the living room and that's where Dr. Dow used to like to sit, like to work his crossword puzzles. And he used to like to time himself to see how fast he could do those puzzles. Uh, that was one story that Dorothy related. Another story that I really liked, and uh, this was shared by a uh, one of the caregivers that uh, lived at the home in the 1990s, and 
shortly after the uh, 2000 year. Um, he shared that when he was a little boy, uh, the Dow home was on this paper route. And uh, one day it was in the winter, it was snowing, blowing, bitter cold. And uh, Grace Dow invited him inside to get warm because it was such a cold day. She made him a cup of hot chocolate. He sat down at the table to have his hot chocolate and get warm. And he shared that Grace Dow disappeared for a, a little while. And later she came back to the kitchen and uh, the fellow, he said, well, I guess I better get on my route, seeing the snow blowing down past the windows and the door. And he stepped out the door and Grace Dow's limousine was sitting there at the foot of the steps. The driver took him the rest of his paper route and then delivered him back home on Eastman Avenue. Just stories like that just kind of illustrate just what kind, common, gracious people Herbert and Grace Dow were. I remember Gary Gorey saying that Herbert Dow would have considered himself a horticulturalist, not so much a chemist. Yes. In the living room of the Dow home, uh, there's a library, as is there's one upstairs. I think you'll find more books in there on botany and horticulture than you will chemistry. Uh, yeah, he was a master horticulturist as well as a, a genius at chemistry. Floyd, before we leave, speaking about the Dow family, let me just ask a little bit about the Willard Dow plane crash. You said you wrote an article about that. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Okay. On uh, March 31st, 1949, uh, Willard Dow and his wife uh, were invited to MIT in Boston for a mid-century chemical engineering exposition. And their son, Herbert Henry Dow II, was a student there at MIT. So they thought, you know, he would, they would get a chance to visit with their son. Winston Churchill was going to be the guest speaker. And Willard Dow had always wanted to meet Winston Churchill. So they uh, accepted the opportunity to, to go. Um, so that morning, uh, on March 31st, it was cold and damp, kind of a mist in the air. And even the day before, Willard Dow had debated about actually taking the train to Boston. But that morning he decided, well, they had a really nice twin engine Beechcraft plane, uh, which was at Tri-City Airport that, uh, well, they could be there in a few hours by plane. so. They, uh, they boarded the plane uh, and Mr. Dow's lead counsel, Calvin Campbell and his wife Alta and Willard and his wife Martha got on board the plane. Uh, the two pilots had the plane all warmed up, ready to go. They took off and about an hour later, they were approaching London, Ontario, Canada. 
and uh, the plane began to ice up. So the pilot, Captain Clements, decided to go down to a lower altitude, hoping to find warmer air and get out of the icing conditions. But unfortunately, they hit heavy freezing rain. And uh, moments later at uh, 10, I think it was 10.20 a.m., uh, the plane crashed in a farmer's field, uh, a field owned by a Mr. Carpenter. He and his son actually witnessed the crash. Uh, when the plane crashed, it burst into flames and uh, Calvin Campbell was sitting by an exit door and the plane, the door burst open on impact and Mr. Campbell was able to get out and he reached back in, tried to undo his wife's seatbelts, but the flames were so hot that he had to back away. He got burned on his arms and, and other burns. He backed away, but he said he knew that the Dows and the pilots and uh, everybody one else was dead. Uh, Sheriff Iris Smith and three of his officers uh, that night then drove to uh, Fort Huron, Michigan to meet the funeral coaches, uh, bringing the bodies of the Dows uh, back to Midland. Uh, the bodies were uh, laid out. It was closed caskets because the bodies were badly burned. They were placed in the rotunda of the Midland Courthouse and it was open to the public. That was on April 3rd, 1949. And one elderly lady that attended one of my Dow Home tours shared with me one time. She said, it was a beautiful, warm spring day. And she said, when I walked by those caskets of Willard and Martha Dow that were just in a, like a mounds and mounds of flowers in the courthouse, she said, it was hard to think that it was because of bad weather. The leader of Dow Chemical and his wife were here dead in these caskets. They estimated that 12,000 people passed by the caskets uh, of the Dows to the, to the main lobby of the courthouse. Uh, and of course, then the Dow's son-in-law, uh, Leland Doan, uh, wife of, um, mm, the name just slipped my mind, the Dow's second daughter, Ruth. Um, Leland Doan was married to Ruth Dow. And uh, then he became uh, Dow president. And um, well, that was, that plane crash was just one of the, probably one of the most major disasters for Dow Chemical other than the explosions that took place in 1937 and 1950. Well, it was an event that shocked Midland. Yes, it sure did. Another connection was that Willard's father, Herbert, um, basically designed the courthouse, paid for the courthouse. I mean, it was his design. 
Yes. And so they have such, they're benefactors of our community in so many ways, but literally the courthouse is one of them. That is for sure. I have the newspapers on that crash event. And uh, when I've given presentations on the event, of course, I have those newspapers to show with big, big black headlines and pictures of the crash. Um, it's a very tragic event. Okay, and I just have to, you amaze me because you have newspaper, you save newspapers all your life. You all yes. you, you <laughs> save everything. Uh, let, let's just talk about you briefly. Uh, in terms of your career, you've done a lot of things. What, what have you done with career-wise? Okay, uh, when I was going to Delta, I worked part-time for the Earl Chambers Company out on uh, Eastman Road. Uh, they manufactured wood shipping pallets for Dow Chemical. That was their primary um, portion of the industry. And uh, I think it was about a year or so after that, that the foreman, who was 65, he wanted to retire. And uh, I was the only one of 35 employees that really wanted that job. And I was the youngest guy in the place. Well, the foreman, he was kind of a rough fellow, but he groomed me for that job. He put me on every machine. We troubleshooted with every machine. He showed me how to set up the pallet tables, uh, just everything from A to Z. So when he retired, uh, the owner of the company gave me a chance. He said, Floyd, we'll give you a couple weeks and see what you can do. The first day as foreman, I had to fire a man. Hmm. Uh, he didn't want to do any a job, any job I assigned him. And everybody was watching. As much as I hated it, I had to fire that man. I wrote out his paycheck, handed it to him, and ushered him out the door. I never had another problem with any employee after that. Two weeks later on Friday afternoon, we, when we shut down, the owner of the business, my boss, he called me into the office and he said, Floyd, I don't know what you did. I don't know how you did it, but we broke all time production records this week. You've got yourself a job. So I was foreman there for three years. I loved the challenge of running that business and having charge of 35 employees. But I realized I couldn't go any higher. I didn't want to be there till I was 65. So I put in my resignation. <clears throat> my boss gave me a raise, tried to talk me into staying on, but I thought I've got to give this up and do something else. When I was in college, I majored in business and also the medical field, which have many interests and those two career-wise really interested me. So I went to work at Midland Hospital as a surgical technician, uh, initially working post-op and the emergency room, but eventually I specialized in orthopedics. 
helped install the first uh, knee and first artificial hip. And uh, I really enjoyed orthopedics and I worked that field for 25 years. I gave it up in 1995. Uh, also went into business. Uh, I've been for, well, ever since I was about 21, I've been a landlord. I've owned as many as 12 rental properties. I've sold them all off except for one. It's head of the Landlord Association here in Midland for many years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I've been a property developer. I've bought a lot of homes, renovated, resold them. Uh, I've owned uh, two apartment buildings. Um, just achieved tremendous success in property ownership, being a landlord, I've been a stock market investor, been successful in all those avenues. And at 50, I decided that uh, I'm very comfortable financially. And that's uh, when I gave up the hospital job, I eventually sold the business. I did continue property investing and I've mentored many individuals to have their own rental properties as well as how to buy, renovate and uh, resell houses or flip homes. So had a very successful career. And for a while, didn't you lecture people how to flip homes or? Yes, I've, uh, I've done a lot of mentoring, which I love to do. Um, still doing it, uh, had a lot of success stories. And actually back in the uh, 1980s, having studied business and a lot of business experience, I put together a one day crash course, how to start, own, operate your own small business. I would conduct these uh, one day crash courses at the Midland Holiday Inn. Uh, $50 a person included lunch and all materials. It was an eight hour crash course. And uh, I had a lot of people open their own businesses and are still, still going strong today. So uh, I had to give that up when my father became ill with cancer. I took care of him for about a year until his death in 1988. And uh, I just, never really got back into doing the small business lectures, but we'll mentor one-on-one. -on -one. Very good. And I know we're getting short on time. So I, another interesting thing, there's a lot of interesting things about you, but one is you've had some near death experiences. Can you just state? Okay. That when I was 14 on May 29th, 1962, at 4.05 in the afternoon at our family farm, I was struck and from all accounts, I was actually killed by a bolt of lightning. Family friend was there, resuscitated me after some minutes. Um, it's an awesome story. I know we don't have time to go into it, but I fortunately survived that due to the efforts of this family friend. Uh, I was 
when I was 23, I was uh, the only survivor out of three on a head-on collision. A drunk driver come across center line and caused the accident. Uh, I was, by all accounts, when I was nine years old, I was drowned at the Mills gravel pit where a group of us were swimming and horse playing in the water. Uh, narrowly missed being in a uh, passenger plane that crashed in 1970. I guess if a cat has nine lives, I think I have a few left. Well, good. And you can be the director of the Historical Society until 100. That all works out. Uh, yes. Only 26 years to go. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we're about at the end. Is there anything that you'd like to say to sum up? Well, it's it's uh, great to be able to share a little bit of my life for posterity and some of my experiences and stories. Um I had the pleasure of heading up this program, oral history program, back in 1999. Uh, we, several volunteers, myself, we conducted 83 oral histories on elderly Midlanders, and I think all but about two or three have passed away now. So all their history and stories are preserved. and. I just feel this is a great program and uh, it's just great to preserve this living history that can go on. Uh, I often feel when I attend a funeral service for an elderly individual, I think of all the history that individual takes with them. But due to this MCHS program of conducting oral histories, we can preserve that history and it doesn't all go with those individuals to their graves. So I guess that'll wrap it up. I thank you, Ken, for meeting this challenge to capture some of my life and record it in this avenue. Well, thank you so much, Floyd. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.